Well, hello, and welcome to another episode of Twisted Tales with Faith and Lisa. And I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving besides Lisa. Yeah, it was not not the best, but it's okay. I would have brought you food. Her, uh, her child was sick, so she spent yeah. it alone with all her friends. I mean, um, my boyfriend was here, so that kind of worked. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, he came, yeah, he came back. Okay. They always come back. <laughs> You're glutton for punishment. <laughs> You don't so, have to do that, you know. You can just keep running. Random thought just popped into my head. Oh, gosh. All right, so I'm going to have to go ahead and warn you. We are not alone. Something is in this garage. You scared the crap out of me and Brian about 15 minutes before you got What here. are we talking? Flying, creeping, slithering? I don't know. We didn't see anything. Good. But we heard it. Good. And so if you guys all hear us randomly like scream, scream yeah. it's because it could, it could be. I think it's a bird, personally. I think there's a bird somewhere in the garage. Excellent. This, Where it is, I don't know. This morning when I was walking out to my car at 5 to get all my crap out from yesterday, on the same vein, I was walking and I went to step out of the um, little path, the concrete, into the grass. And I saw a snake go across and I literally shat my pants. <laughs> like, had I'm a sure heart attack. It was a stick. It was my shadow, come to find out. It was your shadow. <laughs> but I would have, I'm telling you, lost my mother effing mind. And then realized there was a shadow, and I was still babe. scared. Like, still wouldn't walk in the grass after that. Even though I knew it was my shadow. So, I understand the fear of being surrounded by things that you don't know what they are. Yeah, I've not heard anything since, so I don't, <sighs> I don't know. Excellent. Wow. Maybe it got so cold it died and just fell off of something. Could have. It's pretty cold. Yeah. All right. Well, are you ready? No. I like banter. We're good. Oh, we don't have you. I don't have you banter. I hate you. Okay, go. It's okay. Well, so tonight's episode is two-part. I, p- I picked this episode for two reasons. Number one. Because you really love it when there's a cliffhanger and Lisa has to wait to hear the rest of the story. Is that- no, no, no. This is, it's all going to be told tonight. Oh, okay. If you listen quickly and, you know, let me talk. <clears throat> um, <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I know. Um, no, it's tonight. It's a two-parter why I picked this episode. Number one. I said that I wanted to do some Christmas episodes since we're in December. Mm-hmm. And it's not really a Christmas episode, but Christmas appears in it at one point. So, bada bing, bada boom. Yeah, it's like Harry Potter um, being a Christmas yes. movie. Our Robin Hood with do. Kevin Costner. Yep. yep. Yeah, who knows? 100% a Christmas movie. Totally. Die hard. Die hard. 100%. Christmas movie. Don't care what Bruce Willis said that one time. <laughs> um, second reason is last week's episode that you told us sucked. Sorry. And left me upset and I'm distraught. Sorry. And so you had to find something equally. Oh, no, it's not equal, my friend. I am going to destroy your soul tonight. Great. Yes, that's where we're, that's where we're at. Just a cool so, so I'm going to have to watch something to get over it tonight and think ooh. about something else. That's... No, there is no. There is no. Okay. There's, there's, there's no getting over it. I'm so, excited. Let's just jump. And, and you know, it kind of goes in the vein of what we've talked about several times with America's justice system. Yep which I use those phrases extremely loosely yep. at this point in tonight. <laughs> um, just us. Yeah. System. Oh, oh. Because the only people oh. we care about is just us. <laughs> very, very Sorry, well that said. Sorry, that was kind of messed up. Um, but we also talk about the death penalty a lot on this. Yeah. this um, and I'm in a gray area because I don't trust the justice system 100%. Right. So this, this backs me up. All right. So to this under- is not the first case, though, that you said that, that, that it kind of backs you up. No, no, like I'm the building, other, the other I am building, this podcast is basically um, evidence on why the justice system needs to be overhauled. Yes. 
like, you know. I feel like I just I saved you from, like, cursing or something. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. So to understand tonight's episode, I want to give you a few details, if you will. We're going to take a quick history lesson um, because we're going on the way back machine. So I just want to set the time for you. Uh, we're in America. Cool. 20-ish. 20s. 20s. Roaring 20s. Flappers. Jazz. Whole nine. Love it. Right? Cool. Right before the 30s, which was the Great Depression. Right. Um, in the 1920s, there was a lot of distrust and bias against immigrants. Um, they were singled out. If they were from non-Nordic countries, which were Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and Iceland, those people were believed to have superior genes and smarter than other immigrants that traveled here. Which, you know, long skipping a junk, 20 years later, 1941 was the Holocaust, so way to go America, setting the pavement for Hitler there. Um, but anyways, so there was a lot of, there was a lot of prejudice, not unlike today. Um, there was also backwards beliefs, you know, you don't have sex before marriage. If you have a kid outside a wedlock, you should be stoned, you know. Yeah. Um, there's also a lot of prejudice against individuals with mental disabilities during this time frame in America. Um, people, it was a very firm, widespread belief that anyone that had inferior genetics and or people with mental disabilities needed to be colonized, singled out, or sterilized. Super low-key. Very... Super, super laid back we yeah, were. Yeah, your kid's not normal. Chuck him off a cliff. Yeah, yeah right? Yeah. Right? So, anyway. That's, that's, I mean, I don't even know, but I don't know. I don't know when they, when they stopped doing lobotomies, but. I don't, know. I don't know. But this is all, you know, throughout the story, all this is in the background. We're getting ready for World War II, leading into the Great Depression, all, all that jazz. So, that's where we're at. I have a drink. Here it is. I found it. We're all good now. Great Depression, go. All right. So Henry Arity is an immigrant that came to America on July 5th, 1909 from Syria. He was followed in 1912 by his wife, Mary. They chose to settle in Colorado. Um, They chose Colorado because many people from their community back home in Syria had already immigrated there. There was a company the Colorado Fuel and Iron Works Company that was known to employ unskilled laborers. So they could, they could work. You know, coal mine type of deal. Not great work, but they could work. Um, Henry was able to find a job with a major steel mill in Pueblo, Colorado, and this is where they set their life up. Three years after being reunited, on April 29th, 1915, Henry and Mary welcomed a bouncing baby boy, Joe, into their family. And if you couldn't tell from our history lesson, Joe was mentally disabled. He, did, he didn't even speak the first five years of his life. Nothing. Um, in 1921, Joe started elementary school. However, it was a very short-lived endeavor as the very beginning of his second year in elementary school, the principal called a meeting with Joe's parents to inform them, basically, Joe is incapable of learning, so you need to keep him at home. We don't want him here. Basically, not our problem. Off you go. So, um, for the next four years, Joe stayed at home with his mom. Unfortunately, at some point in this, Joe's father, Henry, did lose his job. Tried to get help um, for his family, for his son. There's not a lot of history in this period. There's not a lot of details. But around age 10 or 11, Joe was ordered by the court of Colorado 
to go to the state, this is the name, by the way, the State Home and Training School for Mental Defectives. Nice. Which doesn't, you know. Yeah. Yeah, Trenchable is in charge of this, in my mind. Like, Trenchable? Yeah, 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 from Matilda. But this school is located in Grand Junction, Colorado, and this is where Joe is now going to live. Upon Can you in- imagine today's day calling anyone different, defective? Oh. Could you imagine the outrage? And that was a state-funded school. Right. Mental defectives. Mental. They had it on plaques. Like, that's the name. Wow. Instead of, you know, East Point High, it's the school, the hospital and school for mental defectives. Yeah. Anyways, I just wanted to. It is not PC at all. Yeah, clearly. So upon entering this facility, again, he's between nine, he's between 10 and 11. He was given the Statford edition of the Binet-Simone test, which resulted in the following findings. So observations are, you know, things that he passed. He could point to his nose, his eyes, his mouth, and his hair when asked. He could identify a key, a penny, a closed knife, a watch, and a pencil all correctly when they were all laid out, point to the pencil, point to da-da-da-da. Um, he could state his name, and he could also state that he was male. So already doing better than some of us today. Um, yeah. <laughs> he, <laughs> um, he could repeat a sentence up to seven words. Like if you said a sentence, he could get seven words correct. And he could count to four. He could. How old was he? I'm sorry. Between 10 and 11. 10 and 11. Okay. He could. They gave him a picture of a square and a diamond, and he could correctly draw those two things okay so what he failed at on this test um they asked him hey joe what do you do when you're sleepy so what do you do my answer would have been continue working because that's what's required of me but no um sleep's a good one he said you eat don't think he's wrong (laughs) i was just gonna say midnight snacking's a thing but that was a fail Um, i mean i just feel like no matter what eating is always just the right time. To sh- yeah. yeah, and I feel like no matter what time, I'm sleepy. So, I'm angry. I'm going to eat. Right. I'm pissed off. Wait, I said that. Yeah. Okay, never mind. <laughs> those are your two <laughs> those emotions. Are my, those are my That um, one feeling. They Back asked. Real quick at work today. Super fast. I got to okay. tell you. So they were talking about how cold it got, right? Duh, freezing. And so <laughs> they were talking about how it, like the temperature could drop so much, blah, blah, blah. Chad looked over at me and they were like, it's Lisa's fault. And so I peered out of my cubicle and I said, yeah, I have to thaw my heart out once a year. <laughs> it has to beat at least once. This is the, this is it a temperature. Was a good time. Anyway, sorry. Had to, I had to share that with you. No, it's okay. Because you know, um, you give me crap about not I having do. a heart. Oh, yeah. you're going to have one tonight. Apparently it's a common theme in my life. <laughs> if everybody says it. <laughs> um, they asked Joe, hey, what do you do when you're cold? He said, go inside. Yeah. He was given partial credit for this answer. Because while it wasn't wrong, they wanted him to say, you put on a coat or a jacket, sweater. Um, He could repeat four digits. When showed the color red, they said, what color is this? And he said, black. When showed blue, he said, that one's red. When showed green, he identified it as blue. Um, There's a lot of different kinds of color blindness, but they didn't, you know. I was just going to ask. My cousin's colorblind. So it's just like he mixed them up, basically. He learned them wrong as kind of. Um, when they asked, we used to mess with a friend of ours that was colorblind. We used to play. Of course, guess you did. what color this is? It was a good day. Well, my cousin only wears like gray, blue, white, and black. Mm-hmm. I actually like the colors. It's because he's colorblind, so he knows those match 
all his pants. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. When they said, when they showed him two pictures, a butterfly and a fly, and said, what are the differences? Joe just looked. Like, not, you know, this one's wings are pretty, this one's wings are ugly. Big eyes, little eyes, nothing. Just stared. So then they showed him a stone and an egg and said, what are the differences on these? And again, nothing. Just stared. When they asked him to name the days of the week, he, rem- he remained silent. So whether he didn't know or didn't want to answer, because today, you know, we know they're nonverbals. I don't know. He just stared. Blankly. Could have just been sick of the conversation. Could have. Could have. I don't want to an- I don't want to talk to you anymore. Yeah. Breath you're smells late. bad. You're old. Stupid. I'm 10. I want to play outside. So these results, all the results together, um, gave them the conclusion that he had an IQ of 46 and the mindset of that of a four-year, 10-month-old child, so five-year-old. Just a reminder, he's 10 to 11 right now. Um, The doctor made notes stating that Joe was passive. He would follow directions well, but would not initiate anything by himself. And his official classification was... An imbecile. Wow. Dr. Snopes. At the, well, you know. Honestly, though, back school then. School for defectives. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, at the same time, the examiners. I'm the, sure he'd be on the spectrum of whatever nowadays. Yeah. So the psychologist. I mean, that's like literally what they used to call people back then. Right. They were fools. It's, it's, they were imbeciles. They were. But it's harsh. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you, well, I mean, you know, back when my, my, my parents were growing up, to say somebody was retarded. That was that was what they were. Now, yeah, that's incredibly insulting. Insulting. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Times change. They do. Um, the psychologists also tested and dis- they had psychological tests with the rest of the Aaron family, um, which led them to officially conclude that his mother Mary was quote unquote feeble minded, and his younger brother George was a quote unquote high moron, not high functioning, just high moron. <laughs> And I have problems with all of this. I don't. Because I really would just like to look at some of the people that I have come into contact with. (laughs) You, sir, are a high moron. You you are a I'm telling people. I'm going to tell people that from mom. Yeah. Oh, heck yeah, dude. Imbecile. What what was she? Feeble-minded. I've heard feeble-minded. Me too. I've never heard high moron. I mean, people still will say someone's feeble-minded. Yeah. When you think about it in that context. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> being a diagnosis of, hey, man, you're, you're an idiot. Like, you're dumb. Yeah. Now, to give a little bit of justification, maybe, to the family, they did not speak English when they came here. Right. They haven't been here that long, so they're getting tested by people who are English-speaking, and they don't speak that language. Right, and then you, you have to also take into, into consideration what their culture was when they left. They could have just been a working-class people who, in their culture— you, you don't go to school and you don't do this Saturday or the other. You you learn to trade mm-hmm. and that's what you do. Like on the other hand, they were first cousins, the parents. Oh, okay. So we'll throw that in why, there. Why do you always have to just like inbreeders? Yeah. So sorry, guys. Polly Shore. Yeah. Shortly after this, Henry, after Joe was admitted. Um, his father, Henry, requested approval from the courts to take Joe home with him as the family was moving to Detroit, Michigan, and they wanted their son to move states with them. Makes sense. However, the family never moved. Okay. So whether he out and out lied because he wanted his son, it is documented that he tried to get friends and acquaintances to help him with his son. Um, 
They loved their kid. They didn't want him. I don't feel like they wanted him committed. Like it was never, they never came out and spoke against it. But I feel like they just maybe wanted him at home. So that was the easiest way to get Joe back home. Right. But while out of school, out of the school, um, in 1929, a probation officer states that he caught Joe involved in a sex act. There are different, it's never stipulated if Joe was performing the sex act or the sex act was being performed on him, but it's really irrelevant. How old was he? Um, it was 1929. I, mean, I knew I should have done the math ahead of time. I'm sorry. He was born in 1915. It was 1929, so okay. he's 14. Okay. Um, there is one account that neighborhood, a group of neighborhood bullies forced him to perform sex acts on them. Oh. And this is Mel's forcing him so that in that time and day i don't know if that's true or not yeah. it was just one there's a lot of different accounts but a well, pro I mean, first of all they're just going to accuse the kid of being a sycophant because they're not going to you know they're not going to side it's on not the non-defectives yeah, exactly yes it's not the norms so the probation officer that caught him returned joe to the school of defectives wrote a letter to the state home stating that joe needed to be in this institution's care he should not be out like, with polite society. He was appalled. The officer was appalled that Joe was with regular people, basically. And that he wasn't even able to write what he saw. It was so bad. He did write a second later, later to the school, detailing the sex act that he saw. Like in a second one, which is used against Joe later. But the whole thing is kind of weird. But again, like I said, a lot of varying accounts. Not really. It's, it's just piece, pieces of the pie, I guess, if you will. Joe continued to live at the school for defectives um, until the age of 21, at which point he ran away. He didn't want to be there anymore. Um, there are some sources that stated he was often mistreated and beaten by his peers in the school. So he was just done. Um, so he ran away. He loved, he was obsessed with trains, like obsessed. So he hoboed it, hopped on a train and going to go see the world, I guess. So um, August 14th, 1936, we're going to skip ahead a little. Dorothy Drain, who is 16 years old, and her sister Barbara Drain, who is 12 years old, are home alone. Their parents are going to go out, and their nine-year-old brother is staying with a friend at a friend's house. So the girls are just, you know, doing their thing. It's back in the day. This was completely acceptable. The parents went out dancing, then went out to eat with some friends, and didn't come home until 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, which on the one hand, I was like three o'clock in the morning, like really. But on the other hand, you did that back then. Like you went out dance into the dance halls and, you know, like a club, you but for adults. 16? Yeah. 16 and 12. I mean, she's in high school. It wouldn't be abnormal for no. me to just stay at the house by myself. I wouldn't have at that age, but I was scared I, yeah, of everything. I, I, I was going to say, I wouldn't have personally done it, but a lot of no. people do. Mostly I, men. I, I don't boys. even like doing it today. So no. Um, anyway. The parents come home, and their father, Riley, is immediately concerned. The front light in the house was not on, and the girls were supposed to leave it on, and they'd always done this before, but the light's off. So the father already thinks something's awry. When the parents come into the house, um, like almost immediately, the dad, Riley's already concerned, but he hears groans coming from the back bedroom. And so he rushes back there. And he finds his 16-year-old daughter, Dorothy, laid down, face down in a pool of blood. The bed that she on is, 
The bed that she's laying on is soaked with blood. There's a gash to the back of her head. One eye is already starting to bruise and blacken, as is her mouth. And then laying just, you know, a scotch next to her is her 12-year-old sister, Barbara, who is the one groaning on the other side of the bed, curled up in a ball, and has also been struck on the back of the head. Both girls are still wearing their nightgowns, but they had been attacked. Um, the gash that I mentioned at the back of Dorothy's head is a three-inch long gash that cut her so deeply it had cut into her brain. She had also been raped. The bruising to Dorothy's face showed that she had been severely beaten, and sadly, she does end up passing away that morning. The 12-year-old or the 16-year-old? The, okay. the one that had been raped with the gash at the back of her head. Um, Barbara had also been attacked, and what had caused this damage to both girls is they were attacked with an axe, like that you chop wood with. Um, Barbara had been attacked with the axe, but she, it's believed that the handle, not the blade, caught her. The reason why that injury to the back of her sister's head went so deep is because the, the blade of the axe caught her in the skull. Yeah. Yes. Um, she received, the 12-year-old Barbara received two blows to the back of the head, but there was no penetration to her skull. Um, there were no signs of rape on the girl, but she was unconscious when they found her, just barely groaning, and they, they, no one expected her to make it either. She did. Um, she did make it, So, and testified against her assailant later on, so huzzah to her. Um, police were summoned, and by 9 a.m., same day, 3 o'clock, the parents get home, witness this horrific scene. 9 a.m., the whole town knows about it. And there's no cell phones or Facebook or anything. This is just word of mouth, but everybody knows everything. I mean, that, I mean, dude, small town. You, you really want to get, get yeah. the word out. Somebody's getting the word out. It is what yeah. it is. So the whole town by 9 a.m. knew that there's an axe murder and fear is high. The police chief himself came to the crime scene and reported the following. Only the bed was bloody in disarray. Nothing else in the home is disturbed. Nothing appears to have been stolen. This is not a robbery gone wrong. Right. It was intent. Yeah. There was a neighbor who lived either next door or across the street that he returned home from work that night at 1120 and stated that when he got home, the kitchen light was on. Not the front house, not the, front, the light at the front of the house that it was supposed to be on, but the kitchen light near the bedrooms. And he said that when he went to bed at midnight, that kitchen light was still on. But when the parents came home a few hours later, that kitchen light was off. So from this information, the theory is that the perpetrator entered the front of the house, turned off that front light, kept going through the house till they hit the kitchen, turned on the kitchen light so they could see, plus the kitchen was closer to the bedrooms, went into the bedrooms, whole assault happened, then left the house through the um, back door by the kitchen, which led into an alley. The evidence that was collected is a heel print on the bed, like maybe a muddy shoe. It just said a heel print. That's the only reason I could think of, like, a heel print being there's debris or mud on a shoe. There were some smudged fingerprints, a complete palm print on the floor. There were several footprints around the rear gate, which is why they think he left that way. Um, and then that's all. So they call in bloodhounds to try to track this person but by the time the bloodhounds had gotten there there was such a crowd of spectators dogs just confused dogs couldn't pick up a scent they couldn't they couldn't i mean people were trampling everywhere 
So police officers, firefighters, highway department um, employees search everywhere, any vacant land, any vacant building, everywhere around trying to find the murder weapon, but it's fruitless. They, can find, they can't find this axe anywhere. So the attack on the Drain sisters has the town panicking, but more so than normal because this is the second attack that occurred in this neighborhood in the same month with an axe. There was a lady down the street, an elderly lady from Kansas who was there visiting her friend, and she was attacked at night at a friend's house by a man with an axe. She survived, but that's two attacks that close together, and it's, it's, it's hysteria. There's mm-hmm. an axe murder. Correct. You can imagine the newspaper headlines, right? Mm-hmm. So, speaking of the newspaper headlines, newspapers are screaming headlines. Like, it's, it's yellow dog journalism where the flashy, you know, not much that, not that much difference from today's news. Correct, yep. Fla- facts don't matter, flash matters to oh, get yeah. the readers. Clickbait. So, the entire community is in an uproar. People are terrified. People are just going bananas. There is a lot of pressure on the police department to solve this and solve this quick. Right. This is a little girl. Still, to this day, same deal. Oh, yeah. In addition to all this, the case goes from this small community, it goes widespread because the Associated Press picked up on this story. So all of Colorado knows what happened and neighboring states. Like, everyone knows about this axe murder, this little girl that's raped and butchered. Who I can just imagine the headlines. I'm sure it was, you know, told factual and calmly. So with all this pressure, the police go out in force, and they are looking. I mean, they, they're not messing around. Pasco, collector $200, find it. Yeah. Um, they interview a lot of people, a lot of suspects. One man was arrested named Frank Aguilar. He was a Mexican immigrant, so automatically. Right. Totally um, guilty. In addition to that, he had worked for Riley Drain, who was a prominent white man. Uh, he was his employee and had been recently fired. And so... So they're just connecting some kind of motive. Yeah. Who would want to hurt you? Right. Well, in not helping his case is when the, um, when the police search Frank Aguilar's home, they, they find an axe, and the axe has ir- irregularities that match up to the wounds on Dorothy's butchered skull. Nice. Okay. So, you know, he was arrested. His arrest was actually made August 20th few days later and that happened at Dorothy's funeral because he showed up to see what had happened um so the Pueblo police are very confident they've got it they've solved it this is their man all kind it ticked he ticked all the boxes disgruntled employee immigrant he had the murder weapon you know what what they assumed was yes so (laughs) all this is going on while Joe is riding his trains he loves trains he's still hopping around um, at one point he, I mean, he's literally just hopping off and on at cities. He's, he's a hobo having the time of his life. Cause he's still four years, 10 months in his head, even though he's in a, he's 21. Um, and he, he goes to Pueblo because that's where he lived. That's where his family lived. He went to the house where his family lived and he lived, um, the only place he knew them. And unfortunately the family had moved. He didn't know how to find his mom and dad. So he just hopped back on his trains. Like, what else do you do, you know? Yeah. Um, and so he continues this 
this little lifestyle, and he ends up in, and I'm going to butcher this. I apologize. Cheney, Wyoming. C-H-E-Y-E-N-N-E, Cheney, Wyoming. Um, and Yeah. And when he is there, the railroad little deputy people, two railroad deputies, actually pick him up and um, call the police because they think he's an army deserter. He's in a khaki-colored shirt, like army-looking clothes. And so um, they they bring him to the station. There is a um, the chief of police, George W. Carroll, and he is highly interested in Joe. As soon as he finds out that Joe is from the town of Pueblo, Colorado, and he had been there recently, because everyone surrounding knows of the Drain Sisters, and he is in his mind thinking, what do you know? (laughs) Here's this guy, he's on the run, no documents, he's not a deserter, he's a murderer, and you know, I just caught it. So, Frank... At this same time, Frank Aguilar is arrested. They have the murder weapon. They have all this stuff. He's arrested in Pueblo. At the same time, Chief Carroll is talking to Joe. But we are in the way back machine, and they don't know. Like, the police off, the police departments aren't talking to each other. So Chief Carroll does not know that there's been an arrest made. They do, he doesn't know they've caught it. So bingo, bingo, Chief Carroll is going to be a hero because he... He found the murderer. Um, Chief Carroll reported that he spent several hours talking to slash interrogating Joe. Right, a mentally disabled guy who mm-hmm. oh, can't yeah. figure out the difference between a butterfly and a fly. Yeah, you're doing great, yeah. guy. And in this time, Joe gave a full confession to Chief Carroll oh, about the murder. Yeah. Now, the confession wasn't recorded, wasn't written down, so there's not signatures. It wasn't witnessed by anyone, mind you. Um... Oddly enough, the details do sim- of this confession seem to kind of be fluid, if you will. Um, but he's got his confession. So one theory, um, there's a book um, by a, a man named Penske. It was, it was, it's not like a huge long book, but it's a really good book on this case. And it's called um, Deadly Innocent? Question mark is the title. Um, he theorizes on this situation with Chief Carroll And he thinks that the chief set Joe up for the crime because the chief had been somewhat of a local celebrity slash hero. He was involved with breaking up um, a big mob, the big mob Barker gang. He was involved in that operation. So he was splashed all over the papers there. When that started to die down, he um, rescued a very rich man from Denver, Colorado, who'd been kidnapped. So again, splashed all around local hero. and. the chief, at this point, missed being in that spotlight, so this was a way for him to get back in it. And the papers were going to, all the papers are talking about this murder. He caught there the was, murder. There was no such thing back then as leading to miss. No, no. Being like, falsifying information, or basically handing them what happened. Yeah. To get a confession. Oh, yeah. No. I don't, what is that called? They've got a word for it now. Yeah. But yes, there's no. Um, so, right after Joe's confession to Chief Carroll, he calls immediately a press conference, leading credence to this author's theory. And he states in this press conference that he found the killer and had a full confession. Joe bludgeoned the girl to death with a club. There's number one. Right. It was an axe. Yep. 
Um, a deformed axe, apparently. Right. And at this point, the Pueblo police are confused because they've got Joe. I mean, sorry, they've got Frank Aguilar in custody. They've got the actual murder weapon with, like, blood traces in lockup. Like, but do they even know there's blood traces at that point? No, but they, there's, it was a bloody axe. Yeah, let's be real. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they've, they've already got one plus one, and they, they have a two, so they don't know where like, you're going to add this. Yeah. yeah. However, after the fact that Pueblo police had Frank in custody, Chief Carroll immediately. Joe. No. Pueblo has Frank. Chief Carroll oh, okay. in Wyoming has Joe. So, sorry. But Why when. <coughs> you're fine. Are you. Sorry. Are you Okay. Yes. Um, She's alive, guys. I Everything's am. okay. So when Chief Carroll finds this out, that there's someone else in custody at Pueblo, and they're confused, he states, you misunderstood. Joe confessed that he was with Frank Aguilar the night of the murder. So Chief Carroll personally delivers Joe to the Pueblo Police Department. Well, of course he does. Where his, you know, mm-hmm. freaking Spider-Man. Yeah. So Chief Carroll holds another press conference. And he makes sure that this is factual, low-key, nothing but just pure evidence. He details how Joe has escaped from a home of the mental defectives. He's a known pervert. The defectives know it. Doctors know it. Police know it. Everyone knows he's a pervert. And after this press conference, Joe is guilty in the eye of the public opinion. Absolutely. They are on his yep. side. Um, and the public, when, when Chief Carroll's giving this press conference, the public don't even know about, does not even know about Frank Aguilar. So the papers proclaim Chief Carroll is the hero. Da, 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 da. All I can think of is Jeannie, uh, Chief Carroll, Chief Carroll, he's our man. If he can't do it, great! <laughs> Jafar, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so the district attorney, French Taylor, who was there um, for they've got Pueblo police now have Frank Aguilar in custody and Joe Arity in custody. The district attorney's name was French Taylor. He's there and he states that um, prior to Frank signing his confession, Joe is he the district attorney talks to Joe. And Joe gave him a detailed confession about being there with Frank murdering Dorothy Drank. This is the district attorney. However, Frank, when he's just, when he's talked to people and interrogated, he he never mentions a Joe. Which, quite frankly, did Frank ever confess? We're getting there. Quite frankly, if I committed a murder and there is a quote unquote mental defective imbecile. I'm going to point to him and be like, right. I tried to stop him. That's why I've got the axe. I tore it from his hands and ran. Yeah. Um, so uh, shortly after Joe gave this confession to the district attorney, um, they sit down with Frank Aguilar. On September 2nd, 1936, Frank Aguilar broke down and confessed to the, mur- to the murder of Dorothy Drake, signing a typed confession. This typed confession matched every single detail of the mo- well, at least the most recent details given by Chief Carroll. The statement was signed by Frank using an X with six w- people witnessing. Frank signed his X and then six witnesses signed that they, he, he stated this, yeah, they typed they, it up. They watched it, like a notary. Um, yeah. And you might wonder, why would Frank sign as an X? F, 
A. Well, he did that because he was illiterate, so he couldn't read what they typed. Wow. The supposed confession. Wow. Not, yes. Yeah. So there's. We're just getting better and better. Oh, yeah. So Joe was not present for the. <laughs> uh, Joe is not present for the confession and the signing and the interrogation by Frank. The confession that was typed up that Frank X'd does not mention Joe at any point or an accomplice at any point. But there's the big X where Frank signed. There's six witnesses. And then at the very teeny tiny bottom of the page is Joe Arity's signature. His name is misspelled. There's no witness signatures underneath him like should be. It's almost like, oops, we forgot to put Joe's signature. Let's just right here, there's space. Even though there's all these irregularities, all these glaring issues, right? Glaring. Um, This statement was referred to as the confession of both men. Excuse me, both men. And this is used against both men. So Frank goes to trial first, December 1963, 1936, sorry, 1936. They're moving. This happened in October, August. Very quickly after, just mere months later. Um, <coughs> excuse me. You're fine. Let's see. Uh, this is, ow, sorry. August 14th, 1936 is when the attack happened on the girls, and we're December, so we're quick, right? Yeah. So December 1936, Frank goes to trial, at which Riley Drain, the father, testified against Frank. In the court of law, he testified that he visited Frank at the prison, and Frank gave him a detailed confession admitting that Joe was there the night of the murder, which we all know from Johnny Depp's trial is hearsay, but there was no one there to say that. It was allowed well, in. Well, yeah, I was going to say, it's definitely... It's allowed in. Courts courts have come a long way. Uh-huh. Yep, yep. Um. The other thing to mention here is Riley's testimony is the main source of, like, quote-unquote gospel or information. The signed document, quote-unquote confession, never brought to trial. Never read at trial. This man's testimony was the confession. Riley. The dad. Um, so there's that. So I thought, I thought you said at one point the daughter. She's next. Okay. Um, Barbara, the 12-year-old who lived, uh, she comes to testify next. She points out Frank as being the man who attacked herself and her sister. What she does not do during the entire time she's on stand is mention anything about Joe at all. That's the man, not that's one of the men. That's the man who attacked myself and my sister. Frank was found guilty um, of murder and sentenced to death on August 19th, August 1937, literally. Almost a year to the day of when the girls died, he is put to death okay. and executed. So there's Frank. He's gone. Um, we're going to go to Joe now. Joe has his first trial, which is a sanity hearing. The judge told the jury that they needed to decide if Joe Airdy had the capacity to tell good from evil and right from wrong. If he is determined insane, he would be institutionalized. However, if the jury found him to be sane, he would then stand trial for Dorothy's murder. Um, in even this, though Dorothy said he basically... Barbara. Barbara. But even though the other sister that was She never attacked. said Joe wasn't there, but they never asked her. Okay. And she never said Joe wasn't there. She just never mentioned another man. But it she wasn't was asked. Him. Yes. Yeah. 
So in um in the sanity trial, there are three doctors from the Colorado hospital in Pueblo that are witnesses for the defense for Joe. The first one is the superintendent of the hospital. His name is Dr. Zimmerman. He's a psychiatrist. He testified that Joe could not tell the difference between right and wrong. He, He wasn't mentally capable. However, Dr. Zimmerman also had a really hard time stating that Joe was not sane. Right. Because he's not crazy. Yeah. Or he's not insane. He's got a mental disability. Yeah. The second doctor, Dr. Rosen- Rosenbaum, also, all three of these are from the same school for the defectives. Dr. Rosenbaum states that Joe's view of right and wrong is vague at best. It's not what a normal adult would see as right and wrong. However, when he's cross-examined, he also states that he doesn't think Joe's insane, which is what this trial is about. Is he insane or is he not? Not is he mentally handicapped or have the understanding. Is he insane or not? The third testimony is that of Dr. Paul Wolf, and he's the final witness. He reiterates exactly what the past two witnesses have said. Joe doesn't understand right and wrong. He doesn't understand. He doesn't have that that mental capability. I was just going to say, he's not, he's not insane. He just, he's yeah. got the mental maturity of a five-year-old. Yeah. And, and a five-year-old knows oh, the yeah. difference between right and wrong, but do it anyway. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and Dr. Wolf even went so far as to say he's not insane, but he, he states Joe doesn't even understand what we're, this, what this court proceeding is about. Like he doesn't understand what he's doing here or what we're talking about. Like, he doesn't have the mental capability to understand that. So while he's saying he doesn't, he can't mentally comprehend. Yeah. Um, after these testimonies, Joe's lawyer called Joe to the stand. Um, they start with, you know, just some normal questions to try to get a feel on his, you know, kind of mental bearings. Do you know who George Washington is? Never met him. Don't know him. Do you know who Eleanor Roosevelt is? Don't know him. I've never met him. Um, do you know why you're here? No. For people to talk? He's just there? Um, do you know Dorothy Drain? I've never met her. I don't know who that is. Do you know Frank Aguilar? Frank Aguilar. I don't know him. I've I've never met him. Um, do you know Dr. Rosenblum, Dr. Wolf, Dr. Zimmerman? Yeah, I know. I know them. They were at the school with me. I know them. What did they just talk about? What did you just listen to them talk about? And he, Joe doesn't know. He doesn't remember. He doesn't know. He, but he knows them. Yeah. He knows them. More um, like familiarity. Yeah. yeah. Like he knows he their face. not paying attention yeah. to anything going on. No. Or comprehending anything Correct. going on. He just knows, hey, I've seen you before. Yeah. Because yeah. that's what he's asked. Do you yeah. know these list of people? Um, they asked, do you know what a hatchet is? And he doesn't. He's not sure. They say, hey, what color shirt are you wearing? And he's wearing a green shirt, and he says, uh, blue. I'm wearing blue. Um, so it's just basically showing he doesn't know. He's not 100% there. And at this point, the defense rests. They're done. They've, they've clearly. As they should be. <laughs> yeah. So the prosecution comes. Um, again, this is just for sanity. And so they start by calling several police officers to the stand. And they've got one police officer on the stand, 
and they ask him, do you think the doctors are wrong? Does Joe not really not understand what's happening here? And the police officers said, yeah, the, the doctors are wrong. Joe's not just sitting there with a blank mind, with absolutely no thought, no idea. And so the defense responds, well, you just heard Dr. Wolf, who has got all these accreditations, all this education, all these certificates, all the alphabet behind his name. Yeah. All this wonderful knowledge. And you're saying that he's wrong? And the police officer says, well, I wouldn't discredit the doctor's testimony because he is a smart guy. He knows what he's talking about. But I would say, yes, 100%. He's wrong on that particular statement that Joe doesn't understand what's going on here. There's no way anybody can sit in this courtroom and hear this and not understand what's going on. Because a, a beat cop who gives parking tickets can speak to the mental faculties better than three board-certified psychologists. Right, right, who, yeah. Who've raised this child yeah. from 9 to 10 to 21. He, know, he, he knows the mind better. Excellent witness for the defense. Um, the last person to testify for the defense is Sheriff Carroll. Of course. Um, he states that Joe told him how sorry he was when he was confessing. Joe was crying, telling him about the murder. He's so sorry he didn't mean to do it. And that right there shows categorically Joe knows right from wrong. He knows. He's playing a little game here. With a this is a guy who's borderline mute. Yeah, and this the, the and guy this cop is saying that oh he cried. And he, this uh, is the guy whose story uh, has changed on the record more than once. Yeah, changes his story like I change my socks. Right, more frequently than that. Jeez, dude. Okay. So at two thirty, the jury start deliberating on this. At nine thirty p.m. same night, they're deadlocked six to six. They can't decide if he's he's sane or not. Nobody, it's six to six. It's not one to 11. It is split down the middle. I would say those are people with a conscience and people without. Wouldn't you hope so? Honestly, I would. Honestly, because truth be told, though, honestly, like, I don't want to sound like a dick, but I'm gonna. Back then, even today, Mm -hmm. people don't have this innate responsibility for people that are mentally handicapped or disabled. Yeah. Well, they don't. They're just, they're an inconvenience. And to them, in their mind, a lot of them were probably just sitting here thinking, just one last thing we have to worry about. Yeah. Um, and whatever conscience those six people had between 9.30 and 10.30, gone, because just an hour later, they're 100% on the same page. They've got a verdict. It's funny how that works. And they give the verdict that Joe does know the difference between right and wrong. He is sane, and he needs to be tried for murder. Wow. So the case of the people of the state of Colorado versus Joe Airdy officially starts April 12, 1937. It began um, with Joe's defense attorney presenting no counter evidence at all to anything the defense said. And they didn't put a single witness on trial to refute anything prosecuting attorney said. Barbara never called. So Chief Carroll is, again, star witness for the prosecuting attorney. And he testifies with great detail about Joe's confession. Every word Joe said, he tells the jury. But he's so smart, like, he doesn't even need notes. He has that thing memorized. He made it up, so of course he does. Right. 
Um, Joe's entire defense strategy, which let's let's just say it, corn appointed, um, rests solely on him being mentally disabled, yeah. even though they've already ruled him as safe. Solely on mental dis- disability. The three doctors from the school of defectives come back and testify again. One of them going so far as to say that the um, confession, the detailed confession that Chief Carroll stated Joe gave him would not be possible because Joe is not mentally able to give that detailed of a confession. Yeah. Even if Joe murdered, murdered Dorothy or was there, he, he can only remember seven words in a sentence. Yeah. He can't give you that much detail. Nope. Like, it's not mental. He's not mentally capable yeah. to do that. Um, that swept under the rug. Barbara Drain, eyewitness, never brought in to testify, as she had with Frank. Um, the court case closes. Three and a half hours of deliberation, and the following decision is made. Joe we, is to be put to death. We, the jury, find defendant Joe Airdy guilty of murder in the first degree and fix his penalty at death. On June 23rd, 1937, Joe is remanded to the Colorado State Prison with the death penalty of lethal gas. So a really kosher way to go, too. Right? Yeah. So the Pueblo Chieftain, which was the main newspaper article, um, if you're not mad already, because at this point, I was furious. Yeah. But just to make sure I hit all the anger in your reserve, the Pueblo Chieftain, the main newspaper article, write a report and give the information that there are three men who were to receive a $1,000 check as the reward money for finding the culprits. There are two Pacific Union Railroad deputies who got part of it, and Chief Carroll received $500. Of course he did. And that doesn't sound like a lot, even with inflation, but this is the Great Depression. So I don't understand how an officer of the law can get the reward money. I can. I don't think you should. I I, I don't disagree with that, but we're just simple people, Faith. I'm I'm not as smart as Chief Carroll, that's for dang sure. So back to Joe. It's it's like the the biggest issue that I have with giving somebody so much power. Uh Uh-huh. Like absolute that, power corrupts absolutely. Oh, I don't remember who said it, but you. that's a that. I don't know oh, if it's a movie or a quote. Close. That yeah, is something. I agree, hundred and ten percent. I mean, this is, there you go, dude. Yeah. And if you think this shit isn't going on today, no, you're smoking crack. They're just better you're at it. Up. No, they're not. Well, I mean, this is. I mean, he blatantly kept changing details every time he gave a press conference. The details were different. Ben, it still goes a on. Club and acts. I mean, have, have you seen the president? <sighs> It's not going to him again. I'm not. I'm just saying it still happens. Right. So back to Joe. Duh. Arity. Um. <laughs> yeah. Not. Not the other. Yeah. Not the other Joe. He goes into the Col- Colorado State Prison. Um. He goes to the penitentiary and he is under the care of Warden Roy Best. Warden Roy Best was appointed the warden in 1933 at the age of 31 years old. Okay. So this is just four years later. He's 35. He's very young. I was just going to say, man, like, that's kind of young to be a warden. And you got something to prove, my friend. Of course you do. Um, so Joe's life ain't getting any better? What you're telling me right now? Yeah, thanks. Warden Best developed rules for his prison that everyone there, whether you're an inmate, a cook, or a guard, are expected to live by while you're in his prison. 
and one of his one of his rules were discipline without tyranny and another of his were prisoners are human beings okay because of these ideas that that warden best implemented just to give you a few examples of the man um he made he made or he got the inmates of the prison to rebuild portions of the prison themselves at one point free labor okay so the state loves the guy right yeah but during the rebuild Warden Best made it possible for every single inmate there, over a thousand men, to all be housed in a clean, new, fireproof, comfortable, and sanitary cell by themselves. Wow. No one had to share cells. I kind of want to take back what I just said. Right? Sorry. Um, he was also known to hate solitary confinement, adamantly against it. There will not be solitary confinement in his prison. He had other ways to handle situations. Like if two inmates had a problem, like let's say two rival gangs, we're not sticking you both in, co- in, solitary, in solitary confinement. confinement. Yeah. What we're going to do is we're going to make a spectacle. We're going to set up a boxing match. You two are going to box each other. The guards are going to be the referee. Everybody can come watch. That's how you're going to resolve yeah, your dispute. Duke it out. Right. Playground style, buddy. Right. Um, he, Warden Best, was adamantly opposed to the death penalty. He did not believe in it. He was vocal about it. But he was the warden, so he did carry them out to the letter of the law. He, he executed Frank Aguilar. And so um, they actually had a name for it. And I, I had to save the name because I was like, what? But they called it Roy's Penthouse is what they called the death chamber. Okay. So, um, yeah. He did it. He didn't, he didn't really, like... He didn't like it, but he did it. He didn't, you know, it was part of he his didn't job. Have a choice. Everybody has a part of their job they don't yeah, like, right? Everybody. So all this, I mean, Warden Best seems like a pretty fair, pretty good guy. I was gonna say he seems like a decent individual. Yeah. And most people honestly like him. He he seems like the real deal. Um, however, he does have a side that we'll call darker. Of course. For example, um Warden Best whipped five inmates who had plotted to kidnap him and use him as a hostage. And he referred to this punishment as riding the old gray mare. These are not the only five inmates that rode the old gray mare. And he called it this because he didn't do this like in, in, in hiding. He didn't, he um, had a wooden horse that was set up in the middle of the prison yard that the inmates had to sit on as he whipped them. So all the prisoners knew the consequences if they stepped out of line. You rode the old gray mare. Okay. Not the greatest, right? This is the guy in charge of Joe. Um, oh, jeez, Faith. You know, just what I think. Things might be okay. You're really just... You're yep. a whore. So July 2nd, 1937, Joe is processed into the prison system. And is put on death row. During his time on death row, Warden Best tried to do what he could to help Joe during his time in prison. Warden Best understood Joe had mental disability. He wasn't scared of him. He didn't call him a defective. Um, For example, one night at dinner, Warden Best saw Joe take his metal dinner plate and sit there and polish it and polish it and polish it until it was reflective and then started making faces in the dinner plate 
using it almost like a mirror to like just make silly faces at himself. Okay. So Warden Bess gifted Joe with a picture book to be able to have something to look at. Um, he also gifted Joe with a bright red toy car that was a wind-up car. It, the headlights even shined, and Joe loved that car. Okay, you're going to get me emotional. Oh. Um, Joe loved the car. They stated that he would sit there in his cell on death row and play with it all the time. He'd wind that car up, and you let it go, and as soon as the car would bump into the wall of his cell, you would hear him shouting, a wreck! Like, there's been a wreck! Um, none of this compared to Christmas 1983. None of these, none of these gifts. Christmas 1983, Warden Bess gifted Joe with a toy train. Oh my God, Joe fucking loves trains. Loves trains. Um, Joe would wind this train up and send it down the hall of death row to his other death row inmates who would then wind the toy car, toy train up and send it back to Joe. They were literally playing. I was just going to say. They're playing. They're they're playing with. They're playing trains with this kid. With a kid. With a kid. A a man, right? But a kid. A kid. And it wasn't just the inmates. The guards would sit down in the middle of the hall to wind this tray up and send it to inmates and back to Joe. Joe loved this train. Um, I don't. I think we need to cut this off. Ward it. No, we're not done. No, but Faith, I, I feel like done. you're you're gonna hit a spot that you know is damn well sensitive to. Beth, let's just keep going. Warden Bess, in one of his interviews, described Joe as the happiest man who ever lived on death row. And a lot of things you look up, when you look up Joe Airdy, it is. the ha- That's his title, the happiest man on death row. Joe was happy. He had clean clothes. He had a nice, clean place to live. He's not bullied. He has friends that play train with him all day long. He's living his best life on death row. December 1st, 1938, Joe was actually interviewed because his execution date is coming up. And they want to sit down and interview with him. And Joe's telling them all about how he wants to stay in prison forever. He just wants to live with Warden Best. He loves them. He loves it. And when the reporters tried to push him on a conversation about the execution, Joe just didn't understand what they were talking about. Um, Warden Best worked with attorney Gail L. Ireland, who was Joe's appeal attorney, and was able to get nine different stays of execution um, nine stays of execution for Joe. The final stay of execution was January 2nd, 1938, and Attorney Ireland announced that he was going to file for another sanity hearing in Pueblo. Before he could file this, like it was known, he stated he was going to file it. He pushed this, this attorney and, and Warden Best went like hog to try to get Joe to get an appeal. Um... The original judge on Joe's case, Judge Letty, went to the prison himself on New Year's Eve to determine if Joe was sane. The judge spent a whopping 15 minutes with Joe. Was he playing trains? Probably. Went home, and on January 2nd, when Ireland filed for a sanity hearing, it was denied by Judge Letty. He's already talked to him. He knew he was sane. God almighty. Talk about a freaking agenda. Yeah, and not only that, here's the other thing. When he would go for these appeals and when he would, um, when they would try to get this, Warden Bess would take Joe out of death row and move him into his own personal home with him and his wife. No way. Are yes. you serious? Um, right, yeah. Deadly, yeah. deadly, horrible axe murder. Yeah. 
Yeah. So on at this point, Joe's execution date is set for January 6th. And Ireland does not stop. He continues to try to make last minute appeals and he appeals directly to the governor of California of Colorado, who spends January 5th, the day before execution, trying to decide if Joe sh- should live or die, as he's saying. On January 5th, while the governor is trying to make this decision, um, Warden Best gave Joe a couple more gifts. Gives him a box of cigars and a a bag of candy that his wife had made for Joe. Joe is so excited. He opens the bag of candy like a kid would and just starts hoovering the candy. Yep. And immediately, like, nope, nothing. Just starts eating the candy and then, you know, he wants to smoke a cigar. Unfortunately, the cigar makes Joe sick, which makes his stomach hurt, so he gives away the rest of his candy to his friends. I just imagine he's putting it on his train and sending it, like, to the yeah, other. right. That's what I imagine this, yeah. this, I keep saying kid, but this man do. On January 6th, the date of his execution, Joe starts his day with a breakfast of homemade ice cream that Warden Best's wife made. She made three gallons of ice cream so Joe could literally eat ice cream all day long and his, his, inmate, his death row friends could have ice cream with him. So Joe gave all his friends ice cream. Warden Bess also had another surprise for Joe. Um, he had contact, he had found, and found Joe's mother, Mary, and had her come to visit Joe. He, he hasn't seen her since she was a kid. Um, he's not seen her in so long, he's uncomfortable, Joe is. She's hugging him, crying all over him, and Joe doesn't really make an effort to talk to her at all. And when it's time for her to leave, after her allotted time when Warden Bess Sports are out. It's stated that her screams could be heard through the entire prison and up until the point she's in her car and the door shut. She's hysterical. But Joe doesn't know this woman. He's got more of a connection with Warden Best and his wife. Yep. They're the ones there. He loves them. So for the rest of that day, um, Joe plays with his toy train, his favorite thing in the world. Uh, the chaplain, I'm sorry, this part is so horrible. The chaplain shows up to help him um, learn the rosary and try to get the Our Father prayer in order because it's execution day. Warden Best spends the hour of 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. sitting in his office, staring at his phone, waiting for the call from the governor because the governor's deciding. Finally, right after 5, the phone rings. And... It is not the governor, but it is the Colorado Supreme Court alerting Warden Best that they have a special session in order to determine if Joe is sane or not due to Ireland's last-minute petition. So at 6 p.m. You know I'm already over here, like, emotional. Oh, yeah. At 6 p.m., Warden's phone rings again, and it's the governor calling to say he can't make a decision until the Supreme Court makes their decision. At 6.15 p.m., the Supreme Court calls again and tells Warden that they ruled three to four against Ireland's petition. Just barely. Ten minutes later at 625, the governor calls to tell um, Warden Best he will not be granting clemency and orders Best to carry out the execution of Joe Airdy. Um, The priest there gives him his last rites, trying to tell Joe that you're going to go to heaven and tries to tell him what heaven's going to be like. And Joe asks if he can take his train to heaven with him. And the priest tells him, no, but you're going to get a har- a golden harp instead. Everybody that knows this man knows this is wrong, right? And I have typed out, but I found, a, I found another one I want to read to you. Um, so 
There are 50 authorized. You're a bitch. Oh, it's, it's not getting better. There are 50 authorized witnesses for this execution. Funny enough, and Riley you know Drain, the father who corroborated. I really, really hope they stand before God one day. Oh, yeah. Or have already. Mm hmm. So the father that stated in court that Frank said that Joe was there and all that um, wasn't there. Bullshit. Yeah. Um, Joe is led to the gas chamber, smiling at the guards, his friends um, that play trains with him. And as the guards are strapping Joe into his chair, he continues to smile. Never, his, the smile never leaves his face until they put a black bandage or, you know, blindfold over him and he gets scared. But his smile returns quickly um, when Warden Best takes Joe's hand and reassures him that I'm here with you and softly soothes him um, that it's, you know, I'm here, it's going to be okay. All the officials then leave the gas chamber except the priest who, with tears in his eyes, tells Joe goodbye. And then, um, according to Crime Scribe, who wrote a big article about this, the warden best reads the death warrant and asks Joe if you know what's happening. And Joe's response, they say, is both childlike and chilling. Yes, they're killing me. Not you, there. So, um, once, once warden best gets Joe calm and he's not scared anymore, he, the airtight steel doors are shut and sealed. And I'm going to read this directly um, from Crime Scribe. They said, standing near the chamber with tears in his eyes, Warden Best gave the signal and the levers pulled. Diluted sulfuric acid mixed with sodium cyanide forming an almost invisible vapor rose from underneath the chair around Arity. Best, tearful as the execution began, tearful as the execution began, now sobs openly as the gas took effect. And here he died. The end was mercifully brief. Joe being unconscious within two minutes and certified dead within ten. Attorney Gail Ireland had been blunt before, stating before Joe Airdy's unjust execution, stating, "Direct quote: Believe me when I say that if he is gassed, it'll take a long time for Colorado to live down this disgrace." Joe's last wish was that his beloved toy train would be given to Warden Best's nephew. Um, Joe was laid to rest in the prisoner's plot in Colorado State Penitentiary with just the normal um, inmate headstone until it was replaced in 2007. It is, he was given a unique tombstone, the only one there, and on it is a, is a picture of him playing with his train from an article right before he's executed while they're taking a picture of him. It's him. And um, on on the, uh, let's see, on his tombstone is this, well, I'll get to what his tombstone says in a minute. Uh, 2000, in 2011, Governor Bill Ritter of Colorado granted a posthumous pardon of Joe Arity, given the following statement, direct statement. Pardoning Joe Arity cannot undo this tragic event in Colorado history. It is in the interest of justice and simple decency to restore his good name. And on his tombstone reads, pardon on January 7th, 2011, here lies an innocent man. Um, I do want to say, I'm going to tell you two, I'm going to tell you one story, and then I want to tell you one other thing. So, Warden Best, who literally is the is best. Is the best, yeah. He did not let this jade him, which 
Barry could have easily done. Um, at one point in his career, a couple years Sorry. after Joe, there a boy named James, who went by Jimmy Melton, was 12 years old, and he was convicted of shooting and murdering his sister and given a 12-year-to-life sentence. After being processed into the prison system, Warden Best immediately opened his cell door and took Jimmy home with him, stating he is not going to allow the boy to spend a night in prison. So he and his wife treated Jimmy as a son and raised him. He went so far as to try to enroll the boy in school. When the parents of the other students found out that the murderer was being enrolled, they threw a fit and got it kicked out. But Warden Best didn't care. He, he hired him a private tutor, so he, he would not miss his studies. And um, Jimmy served his entire sentence living at home with Warden Best and his wife. It was published in a Life magazine article in April 1948. No one has a bad thing. The guy ended up running for governor. Um, but because you did it to me last week... Don't do this. There is You already ruined my life, okay? That was really messed up. It was. But Mar Marguerite Young from the clinic, a moderate fable, New York, Reynolds and Hitchcock in 1944, wrote a poem and it started a movement, which you can go to www.friendsofjoeerdy.com. And this is her poem. The warden wept before the lethal beans were dropped that night in an airless room. Fifty faces appearing against glass screens, a clinic crowd outside the tomb. In the corridor, a toy train pursued, its tracks past countryside and painted stations of tiny folk. The doomed man's eyes were glued. On this, he was the tearless one. Of these, he was the tearless one. Who waited unknowingly while the warden wept and watched the toy train with the prisoner. Who watched the train or ate or simply slept. The warden wrote a sorry letter. The man you killed tonight is six years old. He has no idea why he dies. Yet he must die in a room the state called walled, transparent to its glassy eyes. And yet suppose no human is more than he, the highest good to which mankind attains, this dry-eyed child who watches joyously the shining speed of toy train. What warden weeps in the stony corridor? What mournful eyes are peering through the glass? Who will ever shut the final door and watch the fumes upon a face? And it was written because everyone knew. Warden Best sobbed. Everyone at that prison knew. Joe Arity was not guilty. And that was their friend. Warden Best tried to take him home with him several times. Did take him home. And the state of Colorado failed. It's pure and simple. I mean, they, they finally say, got no, it. I'm serious. All of that to save one man's reputation because a feeble-minded person didn't. But he mattered. If they'd have just given him life, he'd have been, been happy. He'd have been happy. He wouldn't have quote unquote hurt anybody. He never did. It was all to prove a point. It was all to just prove. A point. That's in my story. You made me cry, dude. Okay, I'm, I, you made me like, dude. I have sobbed over this story, like. Because you can look, they've got... Like, literally, fucking trust no one. Yeah, there's a lot of pitch, there's a lot of stories, even from, like, the 70s, even from, um, 
freaking what's his name? Navarro's mom. It's hard to find pictures of her. Yeah. There are so many pictures of Joe and Officer Best online that you can find. You're not show me some of those before you go tonight. Oh, and he's the cutest. Like, you just look at him and know. Like, he's the cutest little man. And, I mean, and he was a man. He was, I mean, early 20s. But he was just this happy kid, basically, on death row. Yeah. That even has, like, stone hard death row guards sitting on the floor waiting for a toy not train. Even, not even that, to but men them. who actually committed murder. Yeah. And that are winding that this is, train that, that back needed up. It. Yeah. Winding his train back up and, and sending, sending it, back. it back because I feel like they all love Joe. Like Joe is their family. I think they all treated Joe like, yeah, I, you said, yeah, he was a man, but they were, they were treating Joe like the child he was inside. Yeah, because he was. Because even stone hard criminals, okay, a two year old hands you a, a fake phone and you you're, answer you're it. You're answering it and talking to whoever's there. Yep. And so, yeah, the train was on Christmas. There's a poem like you did. I love trains and I work with trains and you've almost ruined trains for me. Oh, my, my job is trains, Faith. I didn't think about that. But and now every time the trains go by, I'm going to be like, oh, Joe, Erdy, Joe. Yeah. So, man. Yeah. So it's stories like this is why I can't be 100% for the death penalty because the system is so corrupt. Like, there wasn't a single piece of evidence it, you against know what? this kid. It's, it's, it's stories like this that it's, it's not the death penalty that's the problem. It's the people in power. Whose reputation are we saving? Yeah. Some of it, obviously, is genuine because they're, there's no, they don't have any like sweat in the game. You know, mm -hmm. they, they got nothing, right? Yeah. But then you have things like Epstein and that's going to go on forever and ever and ever. Oh, we'll never get the, we'll never, no, it'll be. Never. Nobody's going to bear consequences. It'll be a quote unquote conspiracy actions. theory until right. the end of time. Yep. But again, Faith, like you're looking at your one stupid high muckety muck sheriff, whatever you want to call him. Yep. Mr. Carroll. That was on record changing his story. Yeah. On record. But it those things don't matter, dude. He, but they should. He was the popular choice. But that's the thing. <sighs> These are the people that we put in one imbecile, one mentally feeble human. Defective, mentally defective. Mentally defective human. Didn't matter. Not even a little bit. I feel like everyone in charge and should that be like Warden Best. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because he was a good man. And that, not even that, dude. Not I even, wanted to set it up like he wasn't was he a, a good, good man, man, but he was a good man. Not even was he just a good man. Okay, uh, the Green Mile. Yeah. Perfect freaking example. A man who did nothing and a guy who still had to carry out his task because it was a stupid freaking job. Mm -hmm. But you know what? I'm <sighs> As much as I hate it, because I have to think. I didn't do like a ton of research on, on Warden Best afterwards. I know that. He was in some movies. I know that he ran for governor. Yeah. Um, I know that he, like, literally everybody loved this guy. I know that he adopted that one kid until the, yeah. the kid was, like, got out of jail. Yeah. Um, I know all that, but I have to think that to his dying breath, he thought of Joe Arity. Absolutely. Like, he oh, always absolutely. thought of Joe Arity. You know, and then it's like one of those stupid catch-22s, right? It's like. I'm not, I won't do this. I'm not going to put this man to death. 
Well, but I've, then on the opposite end as of much that, as as much as it's he, like, what can I do moving forward to make sure this doesn't happen? Like but literally, even it, if he'd made governor, he would have. But I think as much as it traumatized him mentally, yeah, I, I have to think it did. I'm so glad he was the warden because a lot of people, at least in Joe's last moment, he felt sympathy and love. He felt love. That was his. That was his family. Yep. His own mother. He had no response to, but. When talking to reporters, he wanted to live at the prison forever. He wanted to live with Warden Best forever. He loves them. I'm telling you. I just finished I'm not, crying. I'm not, I'm not like, exactly a fan of what you just did to me tonight, but that was a really good story. It was, yeah. It was a very good story. I've sat on it for a while because I couldn't even, like, get through without crying, which is, you know, still, my boy, I had the wobble. Yeah, the, the fact that you even made me tear up is, like, you done something. I, I won. I won. Yeah. I won some kind of award because I got. I got you past anger and 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 whatever other violent emotions you have into like feel emotions. Yeah. But and he. I'm. I'm telling you. I'll post pictures of him. Please do. I've got pictures of his tombstone. I've got pictures of newspaper articles. I've got pictures of Warden Best. I've got pictures. Lots of pictures of Joe. Like there's so many pictures of Joe. Yeah. And Best. But he's like the cutest little. I honestly, how I picture him in my mind, and this is, I guarantee it's only because of the love of trains, but a, a very, a mentally disabled Sheldon Cooper. Yep. Train hat, whistle, yep. whole nine. Whole nine. But that's how I imagine him, just not like the smart science geek, but just like a little. Just a little. Because that's how I always guy. saw Sheldon as like a little boy. Like he needs to be taken care of. Yeah. I mean, he was a dick, but he was also like cute little Sheldon. Like, you know, he doesn't want. Pilden and Penny and Shell or Penny and Leonard to fight because that's what his parents did. And he'd run away and yeah. like that's how I picture Joe, Joe is just this sweet naive adult child who's a child and he was so I love that his last few years were with friendship and love and choo choos best literally the the little. You know, because it, it's it's great depression times, and this warden is buying him picture books and cars that have working headlights and a train set. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, this guy's not getting paid bank. He's a, he's a prison warden. Yeah, and you know, for all the people in the world that could be, like, scarred by life, I'm sure a prison warden, they, they get hard quick, yeah. right? No, they're not the most sympathetic people. And, you know, riding they the deal. old gray mare, not right. the best. Right. But, well, but know what I mean? Like, is these people are hardened for a reason. Yeah. Like, they are dealing with the and lowest of the low on a regular basis. He they never have... did. He treated them all. Every prisoner is a human with being. With respect. Disciplined, without tyranny. And, yeah. you know, we're going to settle this like adults. We're not going to, you're not going to be thrown in a, in a, in a dark cell. You're going to sit there and box it out like men with yeah. a referee. It's going to be above board. It's going to be clean. Yeah. Everybody else is going to have some fun. Get to go to a sporting event. And when he gets this this child in a man's body, we're going to get him, his wife even, making him homemade candies, making him ice cream. Like, you know he had to go home and talk about it for his wife to be invested like that. Yeah. Like, they don't make a lot of money. No. And yet they're spending what they anything they can to make this kid's life better before he's, before, before, before Warden Best has to kill him. Because that's what happens. So anyway, wow! Thank you for ruining my life this week. Merry Christmas month. 
had nothing to do with Christmas. He you didn't his, even mention it. Uh-huh. Christmas 1938 is when he got his toy train. That was his Christmas present from Warden Best to Mrs. Best. Yep. Definitely Harry Potter-like. Oh, so, yeah. Well, guys, I'm, I hope your evening is as sucky as mine. I'm going to go ahead and hop off here and punch Faith in the throat. Remember, I told you before, remember you love me. I don't, I don't have to, though. Like, you're not blood. I don't have to accept you. That was right. All it takes is a divorce. Well, true. <laughs> I challenge everyone to live their life like Officer Best. Try to find people that other people shit on. Yeah. That don't deserve it and make their life better. Because you know what? There's enough people that deserve to be shit on. Dude. They get away scot-free, the people that don't. Yeah. You don't have to go buy them gifts, but you can make them smile. Absolutely. Oh, 100%. So, anyways, well, <sighs> sorry, guys. No, you're not. I'm not, but I'll post pictures and I'll post, you know, all the things, so. All right. Well, you guys, y'all have a great night. I won't. Bye. Bye.